Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Rise and Shine. Our guest today is Omar Zahr. He is a PhD in chemistry and an all-around genius. We touched on a lot of topics today. I think it was a fantastic conversation. We'll get some use out of it, especially at the very end, some of the final takeaways. As always, if you like the show, don't hesitate to share with a friend who you think might enjoy it as well. It helps to get the word out about the podcast. And without further ado, let's get to this episode with Omar. Omar, welcome to Rise and Shine. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you. I'm really, really happy to, that you're here. To start it off, for the listeners, why don't we take them back to the, be, the beginning, Omar? Where, where did it all start? Where are you from? Where did you, where did you grow up? All right. I'm originally from Lebanon, Beirut, where I was born. But very quickly, my parents escaped the civil war there to Saudi Arabia, my dad worked with a institution called UNESCO, which was sort of a UN division around energy management in Saudi oh, Arabia. Wow. My mom was okay. a teacher. We were raised in this compound. Well, basically anyone that wasn't Saudi there probably lived on a compound, which is this assortment of houses. You kind of, everyone knew each other. Doors were always open. And it was a collection of expats basically from all over the world. So I spent most of my childhood years there. But in Saudi Arabia at the time, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, go to school past the ninth grade if you weren't Saudi. So hmm. I had to, well, I went to Lebanon after that, lived with my grandparents for the length of high school, and then, and then came to Canada to start undergrad. Yeah, been here ever since. So you, your, your father, you said you worked for a division of UNESCO. That, that kind of cues in things for me, which kind of makes me understand why you, you seem to be so, have so much worldly knowledge in the, in the time we had previously discussed. Was that, was that influential in, in any way? What, oh, what I, I'm or maybe sure he wished well? that he sent, <laughs> I'm sure he wished that that information had been passed on more effectively. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, I think that the most, the most uh, significant thing of that time was really that, that expat mindset is a, is a unique one because you're kind of a stranger in the, in the country that you live in. Right. And, and there's mm-hmm. a, there's this, the world, the world that you know as a kid there is really extends as far as the compound itself. And then someone takes you to school and you're in school. And that's basically the extent of it. We didn't spend much time outside. Mm. I mean, I mean, I guess there was a handful of malls and stuff when I got older, but it, it just wasn't in the, it wasn't in the culture for us to be outside the compound. You had everything you needed there. So mm. I, I think it was, yeah, it was a weird place. It was a weird place to grow up in. You, you were kind of segregated uh, in a lot of ways, not a lot of media in Saudi Arabia at the time. Okay. We did have a few cable channels and such, but so I, I guess, yeah, mostly what I took away from it was, it was a bit of a sheltered life, to be honest, <laughs> hmm. living in this compound. And then coming to Lebanon was just the exact polar opposite. You walk in and, hmm. you know, everyone there is, uh, they've got their own cars in most cases. I was lucky enough to be able to, to go to one of the more, one of the more sophisticated, or I guess, um, financed uh, schools in Lebanon, which was the American Community School in Beirut. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so a lot of the kids there were, were people that had grown up in Lebanon and, and Lebanon is very different from Saudi. Everyone is immersed, you know, everyone is in the city. They've been out there driving at a very young age. They're partying mm. they're doing all sorts of stuff and so it was it was pretty it was a pretty big disconnect between what i had known and, and what i got to but I, I guess i'm thankful for the education i got in in the british school back in saudi arabia 
great focus on you know international history and and just topics from all over and then at acs i did the international baccalaureate which was this program for which i guess is getting more popular now in other places as well which also had this focus on sort of world world knowledge rather mm-hmm. than local sort of education about where you are which is great yeah went through a few accent changes along the way too <laughs> Right. Yeah. And, and I want to get into those. I was, you actually got into it perfectly. I was wondering what the culture shock was like. I was going to actually just say educationally, but maybe culture shock from Saudi to Lebanon and then thereafter to, to North America. What if there was any culture shocks that stood out? Hmm. I guess my biggest culture shock was the transition from Saudi to Lebanon. And I think that was mainly just a okay. function of my age. I guess going from this sort of sheltered, knowing your neighbor, safe environment, highly controlled, to one that was just wild, chaotic. You know, Lebanon is, I guess, you know more about it from the recent news. But even back then, there was just a lot of, it, it was still, you know, run by the political system in place now and uh, huge polarization in, in class structure but also just a lot of liveliness and, and uh, contrasts and, 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 and contradictions. So, mm-hmm. so it, I guess it was that transition into a much more chaotic place that was, that was the shock. Coming from Lebanon to Montreal was, I don't think, as uh, shocking. I guess M- Montreal had the same kind of French uh, influence to it culturally. So that's, that same kind of liberal vibe that pervaded Lebanon was here. Mm. And I, I, there, I, I think the shock was more just, uh, you know, just, I guess, the everyday sort of adjustment of becoming a college student living in a dorm and figuring out how to feed yourself and that sort of thing. <laughs> I got you. So is your mother tongue then, is it Arabic and then French and then English or? It's English. English oh, okay. is, yeah, and probably my, the only language I speak really well. Arabic, I can understand, at the, but I learned it, you know, having uh, conversations with cousins and stuff during the summers that I visit. So, you know, hardly even an average profici- proficiency with it. Uh, French, I'm getting better at, but I've, I've realized in all of this that I'm really terrible at picking up languages. It's just this, <laughs> this really slow process for me, regardless of my immersion. Yeah, well, you're definitely good at picking up picking up other expertise that, that we're going to get into. One thing I actually wanted to talk about this dovetails into nicely. So I take a lot of notes, especially using iCloud. I've got about two thousand notes that I'm trying to categorize. Can you tell the audience about is it is it a Slipnote box? Is that what it's called? Right, the Slipnote box. Yeah, can you uh, can you tell uh, us the, the the idea and the process uh, behind that? So I, I can make an attempt, but this is also a recent discovery of mine, I have to emphasize. I ran into this idea, I'm not even sure how, I think randomly on Google or something, of this German scientist who had developed a system of, of writing and categorizing notes called a slip note box. I guess the German for it, I'm going to massacre this, is called a Zettelkasten. I'm pretty sure there's a better way to pronounce that. But essentially, this guy apparently was a very prolific public publisher in, I think, the social sciences. And he developed this method of reading publications and extracting, I mean, I guess, whatever he thought was interesting out of those publications and creating these siloed or isolated notes, which he then organized, organized with no real, didn't really take that top-down approach of, I'm going to create categories and, and put these notes in each of these categories. Instead, he created this sort of organic system where he would put notes around a similar topic together, you know, almost tagging them, I guess, in, in, in sort of modern, in, our, in the modern way we do this, it would be considered like a hashtag, I guess, a, a topic mm-hmm. tag around that set of notes. And, you know, you might have multiple number of those. And 
and then along each note, if, if that note sort of referred to something or, or had some kind of common thread with another note, he would, he would find a way to reference those two notes together as well. And so what you end up with is this sort of uh, organic growth of sort of topic-based categorization around these facts or information, but then also this lateral connectivity between certain notes that relate to one another. And I guess the theory behind it or, or, or why it was so effective was that it was it's almost uh, akin to how people imagine the brain stores information, you know, linking these uh, topics together and, and reinforcing links that occur often. And, and I guess he was quoted as, as uh, he was quoted to say that, you know, whenever he needed to write something, he didn't sit and stare at a blank page. He just dug through this, this slip note box and just collected cards around different topics that started to link to one another and he'd end up with something to write about. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting because I was one of the kind of, yeah, I, I mean, I, was, I, I basically had, have your situation. I, I had collected notes over so many different, over so many different topics across time that were just this nightmare. And they're still, they're still there, by the way. Like, <laughs> I, I found this system and I, I started by trying to work the old notes into it and it was just, you know, like the, the, the job seemed so large that I just lost all desire to do it immediately. Ah, so, so instead, I, the old one. Okay. well, it, I just, I, I gave up on trying to put the old notes into the system. So instead, now I just use the new system for all the new stuff that, that I, that I note down. And so maybe one day I'll have the guts to face that sort of <laughs> nightmare of notes from the past, but uh, we'll see. But he, he must have, so he was physically arranging them in some way. Are you using, I think I asked, I've, I can't remember what you had, you had said. Are you using a software for this right now to, to link the yes. notes to each other? Yeah, to be honest, I have no idea how this guy did it back then with an actual note of slip, like without a, with an actual box of slip notes because sorting through it must have been a nightmare. Right. But, but yeah, there's a lot of software that can do this now. Any software that can you know tag a note and then also link to other notes, so Evernote and, and things like that, are perfect for the job. Uh, you just kind of want a system that works for you at the end of the day. And, and I think removing the barriers uh, that get that note written down and, and remove the barriers from getting that note uh, found again. Mm. But it, on the other side, it's, it's not supposed to be this sort of super coherent way of searching for something that you wrote down in the past. The searching part is actually supposed to be the more free-flowing aspect of, you know, you're, you're kind of looking around a certain topic, you find a collection of notes, you're not necessarily looking for that specific note, it's not an encyclopedia, it's, it's supposed to start this trail of investigation that sort of links together thoughts that you can then pull out for writing. Right. The input side is supposed to be frictionless, that, that's the idea. The, the, there's a great book on this called How to Take Notes, I guess, I can't remember who the author is, but I can get back to you on that. But um, okay. the idea is that writing in itself is not difficult if you get into the habit of doing it but if there's a lot of friction to between the point of you deciding to write something down and then writing it down then it makes you less likely to do it so finding just software that fits into your workflow i think is the key to it just yeah and your interest as far as i gather in the slipnote box in general is because also you enjoy writing right I do enjoy writing. I used to do it a lot more. And then I guess uh, grad school kind of destroyed that because you start to write just about the one thing and writing becomes this chore <laughs> because it's mm. got a deadline and, uh, and you know, someone's going to tell you whether it's good or not. And, and so it sort of died there for a while. And, and now I've started to be able to pick it up again. But ultimately, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an author by any means. Uh, writing here really is that sort of I, just taking down notes, thoughts, organizing them somewhere that process more than anything. I'm, I, I never really tackled, well, I've written blog posts and stuff for Tandem Launch and, and the like, but I've never really tackled a piece of work myself. 
it's definitely something on my like bucket list, but it seems like a bit of a daunting task. Yeah, I, I feel like I would bet money that you'll accomplish it. I think I think I think I would bet money on that. You have a Omar, you have a PhD in metamaterials, is that correct? Chemistry. Chemistry. Um, yeah. Worked in metamaterials as a sort of subset of chemistry, but the PhD was in chemistry. How do you for someone listening that maybe doesn't know what they want to do next, how does one decide? I guess earlier than that, how did, did you know you wanted to do a PhD? Did you know from the beginning? Was it something that happened after grad school? And did you choose chemistry just um, by chance or because you loved it from an early age? So I guess there's two questions. Well, I guess for someone that's looking on advice on how to select a career path, mine is the exact set of things that you don't do. <laughs> I guess, I don't know, as a, I never really approached my education in an intentional way. You sort of, you grow up in this environment. I guess this is sort of a pervasive in the, in the Middle East is sort of, you have, you have that path of, you know, you'd be a doctor, you'd be an engineer, you'd be, <laughs> you'd be a lawyer, something that you know, you know, you're, 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 you're going to be set for life financially. That's the kind of thing your parents, the message that they send you, you know, like just get a job that gets you money and is secure. And, mm. and this is the list of jobs available. It's doctor, businessman, or <laughs> lawyer or whatever. And so, and so I actually left with the programming of, wanting to be a doctor. I had, I had decided that, you know, psychiatry was really interesting, still really interesting to me. And so I so went out thinking, yes, I'm, I'm going to be a psychiatrist. And that means I need to go to med school. And so I'm going to, I'm going to do a science based degree. And I guess I chose chemistry. And to be honest, I can't tell you why exactly I ended up being chemistry and not physics. I knew it wasn't biology because I, oh, actually I can't tell you. I just remembered. So it was the, it was the class that I did well on in high school. I, it was, I had a, I remember really chemistry. respecting okay. my teacher. Yeah. I had a great chemistry teacher. She was just this awesome figure super inspiring. And so, so she just got me excited about it. But I think just cause I projected how great of a teacher she was in the subject onto the subject itself. And so I selected chemistry and, and did an undergrad there. And, you know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was fun. And I, I, I like the, I had accidentally fallen into chemistry for, for that reason, but I really like the systems. It, it's really, this chemistry is just the study of like physics in, in abstraction, you know, uh, and, and you, you see these, you get all these examples of systems. You learn, you learn so much in the language of, of chemistry, in the language of these chemicals, you get, you get all this background understanding of how systems work, feedback loops, all these other things, exponent scale. And so that I really, really enjoyed because I found that you could, you could take that mindset and, and you see it, uh, you see it applied in so many different places. And so, so that was pretty cool. And, and I still had that, I guess, eventual fantasy that, <laughs> that I was going to be a psychiatrist. And so around the third year, I start thinking about med school and when, what that's going to mean. And uh, I start sending out some applications. I, I switched to a research. I work with a research group in my fourth year. How did you, um, how did you decide, just because I don't want to gloss over it, how do, you, um, how, does, how do you decide which med school you want to apply to? It's a, a function of like proximity, maybe price, uh, where you're likely to be competitive as an applicant, those things? I mean, I guess mostly in my head it was which ones would let me in, but uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, McGill was a McGill was 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 one I was definitely I was definitely going to stay in Canada. That was mm. for sure. Uh, U.S. tuition costs were just astronomical, and so it really ended up being you know <laughs> two universities I had some familiarity with, which was McGill and Toronto, mm. and so I, I applied to these things, but just half-heartedly, you know, I there was as the more I learned about what it meant to become a doctor, the less I was interested. I mean, I just I was not. I just didn't have that, that grit, I guess. I don't know what it was, but that, yeah, I think it, it was just that 
that ability to sort of put yourself through the ringer. Like, the, the, <laughs> can we can uh, we get into that a little no, bit? Because I, I know sure. I have some some friends who are doing it now. What um, do you remember the parts of it that that were maybe discouraging for you to in becoming a doctor that you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, I, I guess it was the realization that at that. So I had I, I had a I had gone through. I had gone through my degree, you know, doing, doing research work, really enjoying that, really enjoying the people I met, really enjoying all that, that kind of the science. And then when it came time to apply, I realized that anyone that was really intending to be a doctor, anyone that really cared about it, had been planning to do this from the minute they walked into the university. Like they mm-hmm. had joined certain associations, they had made contacts, they had volunteered at hospitals, they had just, uh, they had worked from the very beginning with that intention. And I'm looking at this application, I'm thinking, I've done none of this, you know, I, I had, and so, I, and so from my own review of my behavior, it must have meant that I just really did not care that much about it. And, and so I guess, yeah, I had that moment of, it was, it was discouraging, but it was discouraging in that it was like, oh, wow, you've had this idea that you wanted to do this your entire life. And now you really don't know what you want to do because mm. you didn't want this. And so, yeah. And, and so, I mean, after that, it, it I, luckily I, I discovered that I really love research work. And so I decided I was just going to do a PhD instead. And, and, and yeah, and that started a seven year adventure. <laughs> a seven year adventure. Yeah. I've heard something recently that chemists say that chemistry is cooking and cooks say that cooking is chemistry or uh, is anyone correct in that statement? Is it too simplistic maybe to say that chemistry is cooking? <laughs> I think, well, I, I, I've seen, so I mean, yeah, I guess at a basic level, certain kinds of chemistry, right? Like you've got, you've got different kinds of chemistry, organic chemistry. If you want to, if you want to take that sort of idea of very carefully mixing different things together to get a desired result, then yes, I'd say it's a lot like cooking. Mm-hmm. And if you want to also take the fact that most of these, you know, chemistry experiments and such have the same sort of low reproducibility that, <laughs> that food, that food uh, production does, then yes, I would also say there's a lot of analogies there. But I mean, that's a pretty traditional view of what chemistry is. Chemistry is, I guess, by virtue of the technological development that's occurred, chemistry has become a lot more. I mean, there's, there's computational chemistry, there's nanochemistry, there's, we have a lot more precision in our, in, in our ability to see things in the instrumentation. And we also have a lot of precision in our ability to move molecules around and, and plug them together. So, so that's created a much more precise kind of chemistry that that's very different from, from that traditional image people have of the test tubes and the, the flasks and, and that sort of thing. I think that's actually illustrative of myself being maybe the, the outside person that has an older view of chemistry and, and what you just articulated. So it's not, it's not in a lab with test tubes. Is, is chemistry happening essentially on a software and in a computer with, with researchers working oh, on Oh, in some places, yes. I mean, there's some really exciting stuff going on with AI right now where they're, they're using artificial intelligence models to predict what the functionality of a molecule will be before they make it or to mm. predict what the yield of a certain reaction will be before it happens. And, and this stuff is really exciting because right now, you know, fields like drug design are basically like throwing a dart at a dartboard with a blindfold on. You, you mm-hmm. kind of hope that this sort of set of molecules is going to yield some kind of activity in the body that you want. And then you have to painfully make each of them and then test each of them. And suddenly you've got these models that are, that are giving you so much more information, simulating these reactions rather than, mm-hmm. rather than actually doing them. And, and so you just imagine what that could mean from a scaling aspect if it suddenly instead of, you know, 10 reactions a month, you can run thousands uh, of simulated reactions and then just focus on the promising ones. 
if we had to, we both actually work on the, in the entrepreneurship space and, and we can talk about that a little bit. I'm curious though, my own uh, interest here, the way that the simulations work, is it is it taking data that is fed into it on the way molecules have reacted in the past in certain combinations? Or does it look at, maybe does it look at specific properties of, of each molecule and then in combination with other ones to see what that should give? Or maybe the answer is all of the above. That just wasn't possible because we didn't have the right amount of computing power in the past. Yeah, I mean, I suspect I suspect it's a it's a combination of both. I, I I haven't kept up with this field, admittedly, but but so there are there are some relationships that some data sets that I think would be really interesting to explore. Like, for example, how certain structures of molecules relate to certain properties of those molecules. You can you can create a table of of structures and then associated electric properties and other property optical properties and such, and then perhaps, you know, use that data set to then predict what the structure property relationship would be of, of novel molecules that you haven't tested before. Then you can also imagine that you could have a, a database of, of molecular sort of chemical groups that tend to react to each other in a certain way, and then use that data set to see if you can predict, you know, a novel molecules reactivity to different things. So yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting data sets out there. I, I think the challenge the challenge is really, first, from a very pragmatic perspective, probably just getting that data off paper and putting it into a digital format. Mm. And then also keeping in mind all those different conditions, the reaction conditions, experimental conditions that led to that data. I think, I think in some sense, there's, there's probably this sort of absolute full you know, data-driven approach to AI that will, that will yield some really useful things in chemistry. But I think combining it with physical models is really where it's going to get super exciting. Mm. That, that dovetails perfectly into the, the next subset here. You ended up making a move from a position as a research scientist into the essentially a startup focus world at a startup foundry. So you work with a fund that helps to actually create deep tech companies and you're actually the director of technology there. So can you take us back to the transition in your career from maybe a more research focused role to perhaps a more hands-on entrepreneurship focus role and, and how that happened or what was going through your mind as you were making that transition? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess the, the moral of the story is that sometimes it takes twice to learn a lesson because ah. along the lines of, uh, just like that first moment of like realizing I didn't want to be a doctor, along the lines of doing my PhD, I realized, well, I guess the more I learned, I was drawn to the research because I loved the research. The research was I mean, it was just cool. I, I had met, Amy Blum was my professor. She had just joined the university. She had come out of the Naval Research Lab in, in Washington. And she had come with these ideas to use viruses as, as ways to assemble electronics, to assemble new optical materials. And, uh, and it was just you, such wow. a cool problem. To uh, use viruses? And, yeah. So, I mean, viruses wow. are really structurally defined. And, and they self-assemble around RNA or DNA and they have they come in all shapes and sizes and and they're extremely i mean they're perfect copies of one another two two viruses of the same type are perfect copies the distances are the same everything's the same and so you can use these things as templates very accurate templates to do stuff with and and so the idea she'd had was to take well was to was to basically build up electronics bottom up almost like the way nature assembles anything right it, it assembles molecules together using their various chemical and electromagnetic interactions to create you know enzymes and then to create macromolecules and to create cells and bodies and whatever and 
and this bottom-up approach is just intrinsically energy efficient, right? Because mm. you're, uh, and, and this was in stark contrast to how electronics manufacturing happens and still happens now, which is top down, you know, lithographically, you're burning, you're taking a big chunk of something and burning away the stuff you don't want and leaving the stuff you do want, mm. um, which is wasteful and, and, you know, energy inefficient and what have you. And also, I guess, theoretically had this fundamental limit. Eventually, you were going to get small enough that quantum effects would prevent you from being able to do this effectively. This has been a threat that's happened. Like the Moore's law threat has happened almost every year, but still hasn't really been, <laughs> hasn't really proven out. But, uh, but and so the, Moore, Moore's law, idea. the Moore's law threat is, is things getting too small? Well, the Moore's law, well, so the, the idea that Moore's law, which is the law that you know everything will become smaller and smaller every year i think there's uh, basically a, a exponential in decrease in size for transistors and things like that mm. and therefore increases in speed and power efficiency and whatever concurrently is eventually going to stop that 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 there's a threat to that law because at some point you're going to hit quantum effects and and they're going to prevent this law from mm. operating this, this, you know, people have said this every year and, and Intel comes out with a smaller way to do things every year. And, and, you know, so we'll see at some point, maybe it'll happen, but, but not yet. The, all that to say, she'd come in with this awesome idea of using viruses to assemble optical materials and, and not just any optical materials, but she'd also come with the added idea that you could create these things called negative refractive index materials, which are these uh, special subset of materials that don't exist anywhere in nature that can only be made synthetically and only potentially through methods like this. So I was just in love with this idea, this problem. And I think that's ultimately what drew me into the PhD. And so coming out of the other side of it, I realized that that's why I had done the PhD because the problem had been really cool, but not because I wanted to be a professor. And so, so I decided, well, I'm going to leave the university and, and go look for research work, see if I could work for a company that I really like and such. And during that time, I ran into Tandem Launch. And through, I guess, a colleague of mine who had been in the department and ended up building a company with Tandem Launch. And, uh, and yeah, a few, few interviews. I actually, <laughs> I interviewed and uh, I interviewed in the same day, met with everybody. We are a small team, as you know, met with Helge and Matt, two of the partners at the time. And they sent me an offer later the day and I accepted it. When, and there the job was coming into it was just technology scout. I was supposed to hmm. look for cool tech that Tandem Launch would then build up into companies, which to me seemed like Sounds a really like a cool problem. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's really, when I look back on it now, what's, what's driven my decision-making is really just, is this just a cool problem to work on? Mm. And so, yeah, I guess looking back, I kind of, if I had more intentionality, I would have been like, well, if I had known that this was the set of cool problems ahead of me, I might've structured my life to get to them faster, but, but it, it seems <laughs> to have worked out. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, I think the, the dots always seem to connect when you look back on them, but unfortunately we have to live life in the in forward motion and can only look back obviously retrospectively or retroactively to connect them unfortunately unless you've come up with a new quantum field theory that allows us to you know move around in time well you know i i wonder if on some level what i do wish is is if i was just more exposed to things you know like mm. i think part of it is that your options are only as big as the world you understand this the, and and so part of this is you know Living in Saudi Arabia, very isolated. Living in Lebanon, not really long enough to, to sort of really build a foundation there, explore. What, and, and also, you know, a, a developing country that had a lot of bad things going on there. So, you know, not a, not a big research community, not a big tech technology community. A lot of entrepreneurialism, but 
at the level of services, you know, shop owners, restaurant owners, tourist stuff. And so, and you know, being in high school, like your entire world is, is just so much smaller. So when, when it came to university, it was really that opportunity to really expose myself to all this stuff. And, and you know, I guess uh, for one reason or another, the particular discipline I'd chosen, and also, you know, this is probably probably true of all the sort of physical sciences, they tend to get a little bit siloed. You know, the, the world they draw around them is really, is, if you want the metaphor of the ivory tower, it applies especially hard to the physical sciences. Mm-hmm. And so, so I guess, yeah, looking back, I think just more exposure to stuff, you know, would, would have been cool. <laughs> it's funny that you talk about your, the world is only as big as, as you're aware of, or your opportunities are only as big as you recognize. I forget what I was listening to recently, but it was the argument they were making is that they're there are some parts of the United States where there are students that are simply not aware of their options or their eligibility to get into some top tier universities. And so they made a a sweepstakes for, I think it was for a a computer or some type of technology that people would enter under the motivation or the guise that they were going to be getting uh, a device, but all of the requirements to enter the sweepstakes were the same as the application to top tier universities. And so they, they then sent that, information to universities and a number of them apparently were admitted into programs that they maybe otherwise wouldn't have because they either weren't aware or, or didn't think they had a chance to get in. Oh, that's amazing. That's a really cool story. Yeah. It's like oh. a bait and switch. It's, it's, I mean, that's uh, the, the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge really is because I mean, ultimately high, high school, undergrad, whatever they're, they're, they're very generalized educational programs, right? So they give you a bit of everything, but even then give you a bit of everything in a very abstract way. I had no, I would have no idea what a startup was if I hadn't accidentally run into the sort of innovation ecosystem or how venture capital works or any of that stuff from my education in Saudi Arabia. BC isn't exactly a class that you take, right? Right. Uh, so I think that's, that's part of it. I mean, ultimately just that exposure to the world is, is so important. And I think, I think there's definitely a lot of opportunities there in the educational space. In, in what you're doing now, you see a lot of technology. That's probably an understatement. Are there any ideas or concepts that have your mind captivated recently? Oh, man, uh, I have to dig through them. There's a lot, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Uh, in, in any specific fields or just anything uh, in general? Maybe, maybe if, you're, if you're looking forward, is there other things that you're really hopeful for, trends you're excited about, problems you see the team trying to solve that are, are really difficult that haven't been solved yet, but if they are solved, could lead to, to large changes, I guess, trying to get at what is it that you're seeing about technology that maybe somebody without the same exposure doesn't see? Hmm. Well, I guess, I guess something I've been thinking about a lot recently and, and something that there's a lot of effort. Well, I guess we've, we've actually been building up the components for this for a while. So VR, AR, tele, teleconferencing, all these, all these sort of communication technologies that try and put you somewhere else physically didn't really have a killer app. I mean, you, you, at least not in their form, right? VR until recently was still miles away from being useful for, let's say, gaming. And, and even then, questionably, like the, the display quality just isn't there yet. Uh, the immersion isn't there yet. And so we have these technologies all being developed and, and people find them exciting because they're pretty, because they're, they're, they, can, they can potentially be immersive and entertaining. Um, and at the same time, 
all, all the technology sector is driving this sort of urbanization of society where we're all moving to the city, get closer to the office, get closer to each other, um, you know, and, and paying the price for that, living in smaller and smaller units, living in noisy environments, you know, the cost of housing is huge. And so, and so suddenly uh, you, you have this, you know, external force that tells everybody stay at home, COVID. And, 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 and in a way, at the same time, you have this new pressure and this new opportunity for all these technologies that were being developed initially for, you know, entertainment purposes, for some sort of vague idea that they would be useful for remote work or whatever one day. And, and bring them suddenly substance in this moment where, where people are seriously considering how their companies, how the world might function in a decentralized way, in a remote way. And I think that's really exciting because I think it's, it drives, it's, it's driving, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of these interesting applications come out for these technologies that have been developed over years but didn't really have that killer app around this idea of decentralized work and decentralized life. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a counterforce to this, this, this urbanization trend that's existed for so long now. And, I, and I th- I'm really excited to, th- to think about, like, I get really excited to think about what society might be like if, if, we were, if the localization pull was released from us when it came to work. And suddenly you got to choose where you lived based entirely on preference. Mm. And, and what that would mean for, you know, real estate, what that would mean for, for transport all the, and all that, you know. All of the uh, secondary and tertiary effects. Yeah, associated. yeah that's exactly right. Yeah. That was, there's, there's, yeah, that's such an interesting feel because I, I forget this book that I read that talked about that the vertical arrangement of housing and the sharing of space vertically is actually more efficient, more beneficial for the distribution of of resources and the way people spend on on let's say fuel but now that we have a, an inverse trend that it it we can telecommute we may have let's say in 10 or 50 years a, a network of self-driving cars if we actually have to get to places so things like motels and hotels on the way between destinations won't really be that useful short distance short haul flights might not be that useful the same for trains we would have maybe different usages of, you know, would, will people own vehicles? Will you just rent a car if you need one? Or maybe you have uh, your car actually acts as your, your own side business all day as it rents itself out as a, as part of the Tesla fleet or the Uber fleet. Maybe people live, like you said, further and further away on less and less expensive plots of land that they get at a, at a better discount and they start developing things I wonder, I wonder if it'll make us more isolated by living further away or, or less because we can connect to anyone in the world. It's, uh, it's interesting. I don't know. I, mean, I, 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 think about, I think about how, you know, you might not need as many streets. You might not need as much focus on automobiles in the city. You might be able to reclaim some, you know, add some nature, reclaim some space back for, for things like a natural environment. But the fact is that not, I mean, physics prevents you from making everything decentralized. There are going to be industries that need to create efficient ways to mm. allocate physical resources. And that's where things like, you know, what you discussed makes sense. But the only reason that uh, a good size of the population has to live like that is because the resource they're making efficient isn't uh, physical. It's information. It's communication effective information and communication and and if and, and that that seems ripe for change right i mean if we as soon as we have the technology to remotely communicate as efficiently as we do in person mm-hmm. and effectively as we do in person then suddenly this this need to to vertic to vertically integrate humans who have informational roles 
and the size of the segment of humanity of that's going to be you know informational based and is just only going to grow over time right like right. as right. as as robotics increases develops further as automation increases the job the job we're going to be less manufacturing and physical labor and a lot more informational jobs it's interesting to on on that exact point the efficiency of communication so for months we've been working remote and today actually my team and i we attempted to go into the office. We all social distanced, but there was a noticeable difference. You know, when you're like five, six, seven, eight people on a Zoom call and you're all trying to have a conversation, but you don't want to cut people off. And there's a very slight delay on your voice as it's transmitted. And we had a, we had a four person discussion and I was like, we haven't had an efficient discussion like this in the last six months because we've all been doing this via Zoom. Um, but things so are just true. it's so true so I, I don't also like clearer. meetings got shorter right like because because the zoom meeting was just it was also just intrinsically uncomfortable for some reason like as soon as you were on you really weren't as much else except getting off it right. and so <laughs> meetings became shorter you know we yeah. have we have these strategy meetings which are basically like board meetings for our companies they used to last an hour sometimes an hour and a half uh, if not longer in mm. person because you'd have these sort of spontaneous opportunities to dig into things, to tell stories, to, right. to, and, and, and there was this organic way that sort of information flowed. And then with the Zoom calls, it became this sort of, okay, I talk now. Okay, you talk now. Okay, I talk now. Exactly. And I guess we're done, you know? Right. <laughs> and, Interesting. And, so it and it's so weird that's not how, that's just, it seems to be that maybe we think that's how humans interact, but it's not how we interact. It's just not that I go first, then you go, then I go, then you go. It's a little bit. I think mean, this is what's proved it, right? And uh, and you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's just body language that's missing or or what have you, but I don't know. Something definitely something's missing, and I don't think any single technology has really captured it yet. And that's that's what I mean. I mean, the the AR VR stuff has been driven a lot, uh, has been driven a lot by sort of how you see things, how you experience things, but not a lot with regards to how you communicate yourself, like how how information about yourself is transmitted through these. Hmm. And until we start exploring that, I think we're a long way off. Okay, this is extremely uh, captivating conversation. I've got I've got two more questions for you, and I want to want to be conscious of the time here. So, are there one of the things I like to ask guests? Are there questions that you ask yourself that keep you up at night? Are there unsolved problems? What are the things that you that you think about when when no one's around that captivate your mind that you ponder? I know for my for myself, it can, it can get very philosophical and I'm happy to, to share them if it needs to, to jog your... Oh, please do anyway. Yeah. I'll be interested. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I ask myself, am, am I doing, am I doing the, the right thing? Is my ladder leaning against the right building, so to speak? The, the idea of you're climbing up the ladder, but you get to the top and you realize your ladder is leaning against the wrong building. Am I making the right decisions, the right sequence of decisions? I, do it a, I actually do it a lot when I eat food everything I'm putting, I look at it and it's a simple question. Is this healthy? And, and then I keep track, like how many times did I answer no to, is this healthy this week? And then, you know, keep an idea because you you can, you can kind of just make sure you're on track with your eating by asking yourself that simple question. Blueberries. Yeah. Pretty much agree that most people agree that blueberries are healthy for you. Uh, stuff like that. So are you a quantified self type of person? Do you like to track all this stuff and make I sure do, but that, then I, get I, I lazy. like trends? I do, right. but then I get yeah. the, the lazy part of me. Like I track my workouts yeah, for, for, for about 10 years. And then I just stopped. I stopped recently. I stopped tracking my workouts. Uh, I used to track my fasting and I stopped because I was like, well, I, I don't know if it's actually changing my behavior 
to actually put it down. And maybe I'm doing something wrong, but if it's not affecting my behavior and I'm not using the data, I don't know if I should keep tracking it. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I, I've tried the same thing and I've sort of reached the same conclusion. I wasn't sure that my behavior was changing, but then mm -hmm. I wondered if it was just the act of quantification that was the point rather than the actual data that you produced, but just the mm -hmm. mindfulness of, of sort of taking the time to review and to, to think about it. Never got an answer to that question though, but uh, yeah. True say. So I guess the, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, we, we go back, we can, uh, guess we just keep running experiments. Like I keep running social media experiments where I, where I download basically everything and use it often to make sure I'm not missing out on anything. I, I have this, certainly I have a fear of missing out with social media. So every so often I, I redownload Twitter and, and Reddit and Pinterest and uh, a couple of other things. And then I remind myself like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's anything I'm missing here. I do the same thing with like listening to the radio in a, in a, in a car and I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty glad that I, I don't listen to much of the radio. <laughs> I totally get it. I've had those bursts of, uh, of sudden interest in, in social media. Uh, and then they peter off very, very quickly after that. I also have, and I'm, I'm still struggling with my desire to just always be getting information. So like I've got right. this ridiculous RSS feed that has way too many sources that anyone, I'd need a, like a team. What are you, are you using Feedly? Yeah, I am using Feedly. Okay, yeah, same. Uh, yeah, it's it's a great app, but but, but yeah, it's so I mean, much. Ultimately, it's, there's just yeah, it's so much. It's so much, and so there's much. so much good stuff out there. It's just yeah. and every and the way it happens, I can almost like predict it. I I'll accidentally run into something really cool, and I'll be like, oh crap, what have I been missing on all this cool stuff from exactly. this particular source? And then I'll add it, and then I'll add another one, and I'll add another one until you've got this massive mess. And then in most in most cases as well, that source had like one or two diamonds. <laughs> right. That like you feel like made the, made it all worth it. Exactly. Uh, but the rest is just noise which adds to your pile. I, I did the same so that my Feedly, I've had to go through and cut out the, the feeds in Feedly. Plus, I sometimes I'm like, should I sort by the most the most upvoted ones? Should I sort by the most recent of the day? And I was like, I, it's, it's taken me 30 minutes a day to look at my articles. I don't know if this is worth it anymore. So I had to like, I don't know, what is it? What do you call it? Responsibly unsubscribing? Did the same thing to podcasts. I think I have over 50 unlistened podcasts in my, in my app right now. And, and I've reviewed them. I'm like, but, but all of these seem, seem good. There's this principle called um, just in time information and not just in case information. Mm-hmm just in time means what you need actually right now in your life. Cause just in case information effectively encompasses all of humanity's knowledge. And I try to remind myself that, but. Mm -hmm. I still so just 50. in case information is really the information that gets you new ideas, right? Uh, I, guess, I guess that's yeah. part of the problem, right? Just in time information is what you need right now, but just in yeah. case is giving you the things you never knew you needed. <laughs> what, what if you didn't, what if you have no brain room for the just in case, I guess that's a bad sign. I guess you don't really need brain room so much as you need to, it, time, it's, and, it's, time and energy. You just, well, just the ability to just let go of the fact that some things you're not going to see, <laughs> you know, wow. you, you dedicate that period of time and you say, I'm going to try as much as I can to get some stuff in this period of time and get some insight into the infinite, you know, massive knowledge that we have. And, and that's going to be all I can get. And I'm going to have to be okay with that. And you just do that reproducibly consistently. And hopefully, you know, you get something out of it. I think that is a beautiful place uh, to end this episode, Omar. Is there, are there any parting words that you want to leave the audience with? Any words of advice, any lessons learned? Sometimes I ask people to share maybe the best uh, investment they've ever made in themselves or 
advice they would have to give a younger self? I know I just gave you like eight things to talk about, but do you have any closing words you want to share? Oh, I don't know. I guess um, if I think about it uh, after what we've talked today, I guess uh, I spend most of my time thinking about how I might be getting in my own way. Uh, we have we have so many reactive traits and uh, well reactive sort of habits i guess that we develop uh, from i don't know childhood traumas or just childhood in general and and more and more i find that as i get older i guess that so many of my what i could see what i perceive as challenges are really just me getting in my own way making like something is meaningful when it not when it isn't really or or i'm i'm you know really the problem and if i just let something go <laughs> like not reading those last 50 articles that are unread then right. you know maybe i'm actually making it you know maybe i wouldn't care as much maybe i wasn't stressed as much so i don't know i guess check to see how often you're getting in your own way and whether yeah. what you're doing really matters but otherwise thank you very much for having me this was actually a blast yeah you should accomplish that <laughs> i'm so happy you enjoyed it and uh, i i did too i took a bunch of notes and i think this will this will be helpful. So uh, Omar, thanks again, man. Thank you, John. See you soon. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. And I wish you a fantastic week ahead. As always, I'm your host, John Wade. And this is-